I'm often asked if there are any conspiracy theories that I personally subscribe to, to some extent or another. I've always said that there are two, that there's something to the whole UFO thing. I don't know what they are, but there's certainly something going on there as numerous government reports, including the United States last year, are testament to. The second one is that maybe we are living in a simulation. Maybe we are, maybe we aren't. Maybe we're all just computer code. Maybe the universe is a big brain. Maybe we help reality create reality. Or maybe everything we think we know was created last Thursday. Thank you for listening to this episode of Conspiracy Clearinghouse. Red, Red pill, pill this, 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 the simulation, the simulation proposal. proposal. This episode marks the two-year anniversary of this podcast. Woo! Woo! You leave the world behind and enter a large chamber filled with boxes and crates as far as the eye can see. Welcome to The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. The podcast that takes a rather skeptical look at conspiracies and mysteries. Each episode will examine various conspiracy theories, most of which are not true, a few of which might be a little bit true, and even a couple that turned out, in fact, to be true. There are many boxes in the clearinghouse, and along the way, we'll look at some mysteries and hoaxes as well. We dare to look behind the curtain that's behind the curtain. I'm your host, Derek DeWitt. Welcome to the Conspiracy Clearinghouse. I can only only show show you the door. So says Morpheus, played by Lawrence Fishburne. The word simulation first shows up in English of the 14th century, taken from Latin roots that mean to imitate or copy or represent, but also to feign. It was first used in that last sense, as in something that appears to be real, but the intent of which is to deceive. The hit 1999 film The Matrix popularized the notion that we are all of us living not in a world of physical matter with physical laws, but a computer simulation of the same. So we are not flesh and blood beings at our most fundamental level. We are computer code interacting with other computer code in an environment made up of computer code. But that experience of code living inside code interacting with code is subjectively indistinguishable from an actual physical universe. Though you can sort of trace this idea back to the old how do I know I'm not just a brain in a vat idea many of us had as teenagers, often inspired when we first encountered a variant or quote from the famous butterfly passage of the Zhangzhi, written by 4th century BCE Chinese philosopher Zhang Zhou, where you find the following musing, quote, Once upon a time, I dreamt I was a butterfly, fluttering hither and thither, to all intents and purposes, a butterfly. I was conscious only of my happiness as a butterfly, unaware that I was myself. Soon I awaked, and there I was, veritably myself again. Now I do not know whether I was then a man dreaming I was a butterfly, or whether I am now a butterfly dreaming I am a man. Indeed, it is pretty impossible to tell which is true. A human dreaming of butterflyness or a butterfly dreaming of humanness. 
All we have are our perceptions and our memories, and listeners to this podcast have already heard plenty of compelling evidence that our memories kind of suck, and most biologists can tell you that the range of physical perception available to us is actually pretty limited, so we are certainly not getting the whole picture as we move through the world. Other thinkers have touched upon similar themes over the centuries, like the Vedic concept that the world is Maya, which is a magic show where things are not what they seem, or the Greek skeptic Anaxochus, who compared the world we perceive to a scene painting and our experiences more akin to dreams or hallucinations than any kind of objective truth, or the Aztecs, whose core belief was that the world we live in was either a painting or a book being written by the Teotl, who are kind of like gods and kind of like personifications of intentional energy in constant motion that create the cosmos of itself from itself and yet projects it outside of itself as well. And of course, there's the Plato's cave analogy, which if I hear one more time, I just might lose my mind. If you haven't heard about it, look it up. I just can't face it. The work of science fiction writer Philip K. Dick is rife with a universe where the subjective human experience and external existence interplay and affect one another. A man who thinks he lives in 1950s American suburbia suddenly sees a tree pop out of existence to be replaced by a slip of paper that has the word tree written on it. Survivors of a nuclear war live underground in vast cities while the rich program human-seeming robots to keep them ignorant of the fact that the war ended quite some time ago and the surface is once again inhabitable. A world-famous entertainer gets attacked, passes out, and finds himself completely unknown by anyone in the world. A plague of schizophrenia on Earth spreads to Martian colonies where a young boy seems to be able to make his hallucinations manifest his reality, and so on. Dick himself may have been mentally unstable since he later claimed he was living a simulated life and that a vast alien machine called Valis, short for Vast Active Living Intelligence System, was orbiting our planet, projecting a holographic simulation that we all interact with in order to hide the true nature of reality from us. So, you know, there's that. But for modern folks, it really was The Matrix, with a highly original take on the idea. Human minds exist in a simulation run by computers that have won a global war against humanity and who keep our bodies as batteries, giving themselves the energy that they need to survive. The first film spawned a four-film franchise, video games, tons of merchandising, and many deep conversations punctuated by long bong hits. This was partly because, well, it's a ripping good story, partly from the unique look and effects of the film, bullet time and all that. And some fans thought they detected uh, something of a subtext in there, another truth behind the truth that lies behind the lie of the world of the Matrix. The whole thing felt a lot like how many transgender people felt, living a life that was a simulation, a lie. This resonated with these folks, and it turned out that they were right. This is absolutely at least some of the intention behind the script, penned by, at the time, the Wachowski brothers, both of whom have since transitioned into transgender women. Larry revealing he was now Lana in 2008, making her first public appearance in 2012, and Andy announcing the transition to Lily in 2016. My apologies for the dead naming, but some people listening may not already know this, so just hold off on the nasty comments, yeah? Nothing untoward was intended by that. In an interview with Netflix in 2020, Lily admitted that, yes, the whole concept was a sort of parable of the gender struggle they themselves were going through. 
And there were little clues here and there. That red pill that a person trapped in the simulation can take to exit the matrix and wake up in the dystopian real world looked very much like estrogen pills used for hormone replacement therapy in the 1990s. And that look was intentional. Mention that to the next person who suggests that you red pill out of the New World Order's evil brainwashing schemes. In the original script, the character of Switch was supposed to be female in the Matrix, but male in the real world. I mean, the character's name Switch. But this idea was nixed by confused and maybe uncomfortable studio executives. Plus, what is computer code but a language written in binary, a series of ones and zeros? And yet Neo and the Red Pill can transcend that duality. And of course, the rise of the internet and the widespread adoption of broadband has made information of all sorts readily available to anybody with a web connection, including online communities of other people who are beginning to suspect that maybe they are trans and practical advice on how they might proceed. The Wachowskis had also wanted to employ trans actors since there's pretty much none in Hollywood at the time. With their newest movie, Matrix Resurrections, they got to include heartthrob Leo Sheng, who's a trans actor. And since the movies were made, we've seen more and more trans actors and actresses appearing in movies, TV series, and on reality programs. So yeah, The Matrix really was all about the trans experience at its heart all along. Craftily hidden inside of a time travel, what is real science fiction dystopian story. But just as the cyberpunk of William Gibson, Bruce Sterling, and Neil Stevenson have all inspired people to work on projects in the real world, so has The Matrix. Last February, researchers at the University of Colorado Boulder announced they were close to finishing wearable devices that would convert human body heat into electrical energy, one volt per square centimeter of skin covered by such a device. Essentially, your Fitbit could also turn you into a living battery. A paper the team published said that these devices will be commercially available in the next 5 to 10 years. So, there's that. But really, we're here to talk about a 2003 paper published by a Swedish-born professor at Oxford that gave birth to what is known as the simulation argument. The simulation, the simulation scenario, scenario, not hypothesis, not theory. Nick Bostrom came up with the idea that there's a very good chance that if human civilization survives to enter what we might call a post-human stage, eventually someone will want to create high-fidelity ancestor simulations to study our own evolution. So if you think of the future as having already happened, which is part of a number of physics models, including something known as the block universe theory, then really technically this has already happened just in our future. Therefore, the chances that we are now living in a simulation are excellent. It's really philosophy, not science, and intended to be mentally stimulating. And boy, did it stimulate some people on the web, with transhumanists and singularity folks jumping into the fray to analyze various implications of the idea, religious people doing their usual, if it ain't in my holy book, then I don't want to think about it, shtick, other philosophies going after the anthropic reasoning Bostrom used to reach his conclusion, and so on. One take was that if some future civilization can run one such simulation, probably they'd be running lots and lots of them. This would mean the number of simulated universes actually reaches up into the millions, maybe billions or trillions, versus just that one real world. 
And keeping in mind, many of these simulations themselves could be running sub-simulations. So statistically, with trillions and quadrillions of simulations out there and only one real world, the chances are far greater that we live in one of those rather than in that one base reality. Ray Kurzweil, the noted futurist who talks about the technological singularity mentioned in our last episode, uses a version of Bostrom's equation for determining the likelihood of us living in a simulation to calculate the rise and improvement in fidelity in MMORPGs, which means massively multiplayer online role-playing games of which there are more all the time, including ones based on Tolkien's Middle-earth, the Star Wars universe, and yes, even the world of the Matrix. His conclusion is that it is 99.9999966% likely that we are currently living in a simulation in a post-singularity world, which is situated sometime after the year 2045, and we only think it's 2022, because that's the local time in the sim. Among some science folks, there's a lot of math flying around, with some people finding flaws in the Bostrom equation or adding their own little spins like Kurzweil has. Critics point out various issues with computational power limits, leading some believers to counter that the entire universe need not be simulated at the highest fidelity, just enough to accomplish the goal of the simulation. This is similar to the holodeck in the Star Trek universe, where only the most local elements need to be rendered at the highest, most realistic quality. Others take the movie The Truman Show as inspiration and suggest that maybe the entire simulation is just for me. Only I am real and the rest is all a simulation. Maybe I'm just a brain in a jar or maybe this is recreation or therapy or something else. Though it seems like an awfully huge use of resources for just one person. Unless, of course, cold fusion has been cracked. There's even a thread of speculation that says maybe we've been conquered by aliens and placed in a simulated environment while they do whatever the heck it is they want to do with our actual physical bodies. Store them, use them as batteries, eat them. In that last scenario, when a real-world body is slated for the dinner table, the person in the simulation dies somehow, like a heart attack or a car crash or a victim of war or old age or whatever. That would mean that mass casualty events are actually, in the real world, alien parties and banquets. This is interesting to think about, but essentially it's unfalsifiable. If the simulation is good enough to be indistinguishable from that one reality, there'd be no way for us to know. All we can do is speculate. The simulation argument is often mislabeled the simulation hypothesis by the press because most people don't know that the word hypothesis for scientists means a tentative but testable explanation for phenomena in the real world, an assumption made before researching and experimentation. It's also not a scientific theory because that is an actual explanation for some aspect of the world that is backed up by evidence and repeated and replicated experimentation. It's really better to call it the simulation argument. Maybe it's more accurate to call it the simulation scenario or even simulation proposal. No matter what you want to call it, it has its proponents. Bostrom has come round to believing his own equation and thinks that it is probably actually true. Astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson says he thinks the chances are about 50-50. I mean, it would explain a few things, like why there's a maximum speed of light, since if we could go faster than that, we could easily get to other galaxies, but they haven't actually programmed those locations into the sim, so the speed of light limit was put into the simulation to prevent us from being able to go to places that aren't actually created. 
maybe quantum physics is so weird because that's not how the real world actually works outside of the simulation. And maybe quantum strangeness is either an artifact from the programming needed to create the sim or an artistic flourish by the sim's design team. Maybe we aren't a copy of our simulators at all, and this universe we think we inhabit is nothing at all like the real one outside the servers we ultimately reside on. Elon Musk gives it a much higher probability than DeGrasse Tyson. When talking about the technological leaps necessary to go from video games like Pong to pretty decent 3D virtual reality in only 40 years, he said, quote, the odds that we're in base reality is one in billions. Though he was thinking that the real reality, which we're a simulation of, is actually something like 10,000 years in our future. In fact, Musk and other techno-billionaires are major funders of what some people call virtual contingency plans. Many in the Silicon Valley have been greatly inspired by the simulation idea and have raised some questions like, how do we prevent the beings in that base reality, whenever it is, from pulling the plug and stopping the sim? Or how do we stop the server we live on from crashing? Is there a way to exit the simulation and enter the base reality to red pill it? Musk thinks it'll all come to pass or has already come to pass because of AI, which is why he's firmly behind the OpenAI project. He worries that we could end up creating AI that sees us as either superfluous or maybe even a danger. This was also thought by Stephen Hawking, the renowned physicist, with the result being that the AI ends up killing us all off or enslaving us. So OpenAI and similar initiatives are working towards creating nice AI that is disposed towards humans in a friendly way. This is especially important since Musk thinks that the most likely future for us is that we will eventually merge with AI, uploading our minds into the cloud to become something that is much more than either human or machine. And he thinks this is cool. As do I, frankly. We may be on the cusp of just the sort of technology we need for a full-world simulation. On November 9, 2021, NVIDIA announced they're currently working on something called E2 or Earth 2, a digital twin of the Earth. E2 will essentially be our entire planet as a computer sim used to predict the effects of climate change and project ahead with different scenarios to see which ones will have the greatest long-term impact. Because it's a simulation, time can be sped up dramatically so we can change a couple of factors here and then speed things up and see long and very long-term effects of various mitigation efforts, disasters, and so on. They're also working on networked 3D environments in what they call the Omniverse, which will eventually be a planet-scale digital environment that can model real-world data sets. Earth 2 is part of that overall goal. It's so different from previous supercomputers that the term supercomputer itself will need to be reevaluated, or somebody will have to come up with a new term. Well, they have. They call it the Omniverse. Of course, it's been pointed out that despite NVIDIA's plans, we do not yet have simulation capabilities of sufficiently high fidelity, and that rather argues that ours is probably the base reality. Others suggest that if we ever conclusively prove that we are in fact living in a sim, then that could end the sim, and then poof, we're all gone. Blinded, Blinded with, with science! science. Well, Thomas Dolby nod there. If we are living in a simulation, maybe it's possible to detect it somehow. After all, modern science has some pretty out-there notions about our universe. 
There is an idea that the physical universe we see around us is really more like a two-dimensional space-time plane that has information encoded and that expresses itself as three-dimensional space-time. This is called the holographic principle and has been around since Gerald de Hooft, Charles Thorne, and Leonard Susskind tried to incorporate quantum gravity into string theory in the late 70s and 80s, but which really took off in the 90s. This idea actually explains quite a number of problems that arise from attempts to combine relativity and quantum mechanics. Essentially, the 3D universe we perceive, as well as our human perception of time, actually arise from a 2D field, just like a holographic picture looks 3D to us, but isn't really. This is one of the many notions that have popped up in the effort to fulfill Einstein's dream of a unified field theory, which acronyms to UFT. This is not nearly as fun as two related scientific endeavors, the search for the grand unified theory, or GUT, and the theory of everything, or the TOE. With UFT, it's really all about finding out how gravity, electromagnetism, the weak nuclear force, and the strong nuclear force are really all the same thing that just has different expressions depending on context. This would necessarily also show that relativity, classic Newtonian mechanics, and quantum mechanics are also really the same series of principles just playing out at different scales. This is also sometimes called the God equation for physics. And this seems like it should be able to be done. Electricity and magnetism were once thought to be separate forces until they were actually shown to be different manifestations of the same thing by Maxwell and Faraday. This led to Einstein discovering that energy and matter are also really the same thing, just in different forms. You know, how like ice, water, and steam are really all just the same thing in different states. That is actually the core meaning of E equals mc squared. Theoretical physicist Michio Kaku is one of the main proponents of what some think is the most elegant proposal to the UFT, string theory. In brief, atomic and subatomic particles look like dots or balls, kind of, from a certain distance, but if you could get in close enough and small enough, you would see that the hundreds of different particle types are all, at their heart, teeny weeny weeny vibrating strings that, when they vibrate one way, expresses one type of a particle, and when they vibrate another way, expresses a different type of a particle. Like harp strings, essentially all the same kind of thing, produce different musical notes. String proponents say that this is the only mathematically consistent theory yet proposed. Critics note that it cannot be tested right now because we would have to be able to see down below a scale known as the Planck length, and we have no devices that can do this. In fact, some physicists argue that we will never be able to see down that small, and so string theory, while a very lovely idea, cannot ever be tested, and so therefore, it's really of no use to any of us. What would the strings be made of? Some sort of at present unknown base matter. Or maybe they're just a physicalization of information itself. Which isn't such a crazy idea. Our DNA is a physical manifestation of the information needed to build a human being, complete with a brain and a consciousness. Melvin Vopsen over at the University of Portsmouth thinks we might one day discover that energy, mass, and information are really all the same thing. He notes that physicist Rolf Landauer proposed a link between information and energy way back in 1961. Landauer's principle, as it's now called, has seen some experiments in recent years that seems to back up this idea. Hmm, thought Vopsen. Wow, I wonder if there's any link between information and mass. 
So he used Einstein's equations to try and figure out what the mass of a single bit of information would be if such a thing could even be said to be true. He came up with something about 100 million times smaller than an electron, which seems small but it's actually much bigger than the Planck length the strings would have to exist at. An electron is about 10 trillion Planck lengths across. Just taking for a moment the idea that one day we discover that mass, energy, and information are all basically the same thing, then everything in the universe is actually made up of information. A lot of it. An estimate of how much information makes up the observable universe came out in late 2021, putting it at about 600 million trillion 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 trillion. Wow, that's a lot. And yet, what we can actually see, that large number, only accounts for 5% of all the energy slash matter in the universe. Another 27% is so-called dark matter. It gets that name because it doesn't seem to interact with light and other matter, and so we can't see it, but we know it's there because we can see observable effects from its gravity. And the rest, a whopping 68%, is dark energy, which is evenly distributed throughout the universe and has no local gravitational effects at all. It's actually thought to be a repulsive force rather than an attractive one, sort of like an anti-gravity. And it's probably driving the expansion of the universe. Dark matter might be made up of space-bound massive compact halo objects called machos, like supermassive black holes and neutron stars, or it might be made up of weakly interacting massive particles, WIMPs, that don't even have nuclei and are thought that though they have great mass, they don't interact with normal matter very much and that makes them hard to detect or dark. Or maybe John Archibald Wheeler was onto something when he proposed that everything is information and his clever phrase, it from bit, meaning all particles come into being from the information that is locked inside of them, and this information is encoded in a simple binary yes-no system, which is exactly how we program computers. But what could cause this locked-in information to express itself and become an it from a bit? In 2021, Robert Lanza and a few other scientists propose that the universe we perceive is not the actual universe. Instead, what we see and interact with is the result of whatever the universe is actually made of interacting with human consciousness. We cause the information encoded in the base structure of reality to unfurl and instantiate. Lanza's overall theory is called biocentricism, and he basically argues that life is not just a byproduct of the laws of physics, chemistry, and biology, but is required for these things to have any existence at all. If there were no conscious minds to sort of finish reality, then there would be no reality. Things would just remain in a constant state of probability and flux, the wave functions never collapsing into specific localized instances of real. Lanza especially thinks that a conscious observer of some sort is absolutely required for a one-way direction of time. And then, of course, there's quantum mechanics, where sometimes things are observed one way and sometimes a different way. Think of the light as both a wave and a particle thing, where the light particle, the photon, is in a superposition of being both a wave and a particle at the same time until it's measured or otherwise observed. And you have some... Mm, circumstantial suggestions, not evidence, that maybe there's something to this. Brains, say all the cliché zombies. In 2021, a physicist at the Princeton Physics Lab named Hong Kin 
created an algorithm that uses machine learning to improve its performance, like most of them do these days, to predict the orbits of the planets in our solar system. Now, the interesting thing is, all he did was input the numbers, no instructions as to what to do with them. And using basically the information we had back in the 1600s with Tycho de Brahe, it came up with accurate predictions of orbital mechanics. He said he was inspired by Nick Bostrom's 2003 simulation idea and thought maybe an algorithm such as this could be one of the keys in creating just such a massive sim. So, he muses, maybe that algorithm is actually encoded into the universe around us in something he calls discrete field theory. He's now going to use his algorithm to take a closer look at some of the ins and outs of quantum physics. He hopes to show that either, yes, we are living in a simulation or that the universe is real but behaves as if it's a simulation. In 2020, an astrophysicist from the University of Bologna named Franco Vaza and a neurosurgeon from the University of Verona, also in Italy, conducted a study that found that the way that galaxies are connected and the way the human brain is structured are eerily similar, even though they're 27 magnitudes apart size-wise. Looking at such things as external structure, morphology, which is internal structure, memory capacity, and so on, they found similar self-organizational connectivity following the same rules for the brain's 86 billion neurons and the universe's 2 trillion galaxies. Both have nodes that connect by filaments with similar numbers of connections per node, and the networks seem to grow in very similar ways. Their densities are similar, and each system seems to tend towards a startling efficiency. One example of this is our brains are able to make calculations faster than even the fastest supercomputer we've yet created, yet they only use about 30 watts of power. Vitaly Van Churen, a physicist at the University of Minnesota Duluth, takes the idea further, suggesting in a paper, also in 2020, that the universe behaves exactly like a neural network. He was working on the problem of trying to marry classical Newtonian physics, the idea that relativity from gravity is just space-time curvature, and the seeming unpredictableness of quantum systems that change the moment they're measured and have definite limits on how much information can be observed at any particular moment. He and his team wondered if maybe all these seemingly separate behaviors arose from a single, deeper underlying truth. They found that when a system with many, many nodes is in a state of near equilibrium, the system learns and adapts in a way that seems consistent with quantum behavior, but the further from equilibrium you get, the more the network's behavior begins to resemble those seen in classical physics. They also found that as structures emerge from within the network, more stable ones survive the constantly shifting and changing landscape, while less stable ones tend to disappear. And he finds this analogous to how observation of a system causes the wave function to collapse, with one of the possible outcomes suddenly becoming, quote, real or chosen over the others. Interestingly, when Ladnauer's principle Again, he's the guy back in 61 that thought there was a link between information and energy. When this principle is applied to the human brain, it's been seen that neural complexity actually increases when the brain performs operations like comprehension and memory storage and retrieval. So maybe the universe is like a big brain or a neural network, which kind of sounds like a super advanced computing system. 
There's the gang over at Quantum Gravity Research who published a paper in the journal Entropy, also in 2020. It's almost like people in 2020 had a bunch of free time on their hands, titled The Self-Simulation Hypothesis Interpretation of Quantum Mechanics that directly addressed Bostrom's original simulation argument paper. Specifically, the idea that the universe we experience is actually an ancestor simulation by advanced beings in what we would call our far future, which is really their present. But that starting point seemed a little too materialistic for the QGR team. After all, where did the base reality that those superior beings live in come from? Instead, they proposed the universe uses information, which might be the ultimate form of matter and energy, and a series of algorithms embedded in its own structure to sort of self-actualize itself into existence. Essentially, in this thinking, the entire universe is one huge, very complex thought, a mental construct made up of lots and lots of little sub-thoughts, such as the rules of mathematics and particle physics, the rules of chemistry, biology, and so on. Even we humans ourselves are sub-thoughts of the overall big thought, and we use our own sub-sub-thoughts to have what we just call thoughts. These nested sub-thoughts, which they call code steps, are what give us the illusion of time, but time does not objectively exist. Without us, there is no time. Space-time itself also might not really exist, but might be a hologram, just like the very first scientific theory we looked at. So in their paper, the whole universe is a gigantic, all-encompassing consciousness that has one single goal, to generate meaning, or to generate information, if you prefer. Now keep in mind, Information here just means ordered signal instead of disordered signal. It doesn't have to be interesting. It doesn't even have to be true. It just needs to be an ordered signal. This pan-consciousness that is the universe has free will, as do we, since we're code steps helping fulfill the universe's overall plan. They compare our roles to be similar to those of characters in our own dreams. So, if you like, we are what the universe dreams. And part of that process helps the universe continue to create itself. Interestingly, this all starts to sound less like science and more like ideas found in several pre-Christian religions. The Department of Redundancy Department. That is a fire sign theater reference from their 1970 album, Don't Crush That Dwarf, Hand Me the Pliers. It could be that so-called objective reality is the result of the universe interacting with observers and then settling down to a kind of a statistical average. It has been observed that a single atom behaves in a way that you might call random, but then you combine it with more atoms and the group begins to behave in a more predictable way, trending towards one behavior over others. And the more atoms you add, the more this happens. All the atoms in your coffee table continue to make a coffee table at the scale of classical physics, but down at the atomic and subatomic levels, each individual atom is still behaving in a weird, wild, unpredictable way, bouncing around, electrons poofing out of existence and then reappearing in a different place but along the same orbital paths and so on. Somehow, they all cohere together to create that table. I mean, that sounds weird, doesn't it? And yet, is it that weird? I mean, that's kind of how your body works. A bunch of totally separate systems that work independently, but also have a bit of crossover, and so you have a smoothly functioning organism. And while we often use the metaphor of a computer for our brains, our brains are really more like an internet, 
with a whole bunch of separate systems, each doing their own thing, and yet somehow the entire thing works together as a whole. In this way of thinking, it's the law of large numbers that really makes the observable universe the way it is when we observe it. So went my thoughts one day when thinking about two problems that are frequently on my mind. The question of free will versus determinism, which gives me the heebie-jeebies, and if the multiple universe interpretation of quantum mechanics is true, then how do I, this entity I think of as me, move through them? And if the multiple universe theory is not correct, then how do you resolve the paradoxes or seeming paradoxes of quantum mechanics? So I had this insight and I wanted to know if this was an original idea or if someone had got there before me. So I went on the web and typed in some search terms and I found just one article that went along the same lines. It was on Medium written by a guy who calls himself Alex the Younger. Nowhere else could I find any mention of this. Plus the article was really, really well written and clear and so that was great. Link in the episode notes. A few days later, I was looking over some notebooks of mine from way back in the 1990s, and I came across this same idea, pretty much, scrawled in my chicken scratch. Apparently, I'd had the idea many years ago, hastily jotted it down, and then forgotten about it. And I'd be willing to bet that I'd come up with something similar a few times over the years, probably done some kind of web search, found nothing to support it, and then dropped it. But this time I did find something, just one thing, not from a scientist, but from a programmer, but still something, at exactly the moment I needed it. And this sort of crap has been happening a lot lately, like a, a lot. lot. We've all experienced something like it. You know, you come across the word, I don't know, supercilious. Maybe look up the meaning because you aren't sure. For the record, it means looking or acting like you think you're superior to others. And then a couple of days later, there it is again in some article. And a couple of days after that, someone uses it in conversation. What, what the, the heck? heck? Common wisdom used to be that, well, that word's always been around as frequently as it is, but you just never really noticed it until you came across it recently, and now it's fresh in your mind, and so you notice it more. Otherwise, you just forgot about it. Well, for some things, maybe, but the word supercilious? Or the city of Darkon in Mongolia? No way people around me have been talking about Darkon for years, and then it shows up in a news story and a TV series, and then I overhear it at the beer garden. No way. That just seems way too suspicious, maybe? Maybe it's a sign of a flaw in the simulation, a glitch in the matrix. Like deja vu, which literally means already dreamed. The harmless type of deja vu, called non-pathological, occurs in a reported two-thirds of people. Those that watch a lot of films and or travel frequently also seem to experience it more often than others. Some say it comes from the fact that your sensory apparatus takes in signals and your brain creates a model of everything, partly from the input and partly from memory and partly from expectation or, if you will, simulation. And that what we perceive of as real is a combination of all of these things. But perhaps sometimes there's a little bit of a hiccup between the model and the self sensing it. So you unconsciously perceive something, then you consciously perceive it a moment later, and then something called recognition memory kicks in, and you get the feeling that the thing you're experiencing for the first time has happened before. Deja vu. Others think maybe the sensory input comes in twice the first time it was badly degraded, so a second attempt is made by your unconscious mind at processing it. 
Or maybe everything went fine, but then the brain experienced a moment of what's called cryptoamnesia, in which it basically forgot what it experienced, yet the information still got stored in the brain. Or the incoming signals enter the temporal lobe twice for some reason, or maybe it's something to do with dreams and imagination interfering with sensory input. The fact is, nobody really knows. Or maybe, as I said, it's a glitch in the matrix. A sign the program you are living in has had a brief moment of abnormal behavior before correcting. And maybe things like the Mandela effect mentioned in a previous episode are also signs that the simulation is not perfect or maybe that it is sometimes changed in small, usually trivial ways, like how Kellogg's spells Fruit Loops breakfast cereal. Hmm. Dear God, Dear God, sorry, sorry to disturb, sorry to disturb, you, disturb but you, but that's from an XTC song, which Tricky also did an awesome cover of. Despite all the ideas out there in the scientific community that might suggest that reality as we know it is, in fact, some sort of a simulation, whether that's a computer sim, a 2D plane of probabilities that appear 3D to our conscious minds, a giant brain that self-regulates itself into coherence and engenders its own evolution, what happens when statistical probabilities and consciousness collide, or any of the other whacked out but quite serious notions that I mentioned previously. The fact is, none of these ideas are actually very testable at the present time. Looking for the fundamental particles that comprise matter and energy, which are, again, the same thing, thus finally bringing about the unified field theory has also as yet not yielded testable results, though string theory is intellectually sound, mathematically correct, and elegant. So, not a lot of scientists can be said to actually think that we live in a simulation, despite what science journalists may choose to say in their headlines. Maybe, scientists say, but the jury is very much out until we can get some data. It's fun to discuss, but not really something worth seriously pursuing. Just like it's really impossible to prove or disprove the whole we're just brains in jars argument or last Thursdayism, which is the idea that the entire universe came into existence as it is right now last Thursday. This includes the fossil records, the laws of physics, all of your memories, and so on. This is a modern take on an idea by English 19th century naturalist Philip Henry Gose, commonly known as the Amphalos Hypothesis. Amphalos is the Greek word for navel, as in belly button. And back in the mid-19th century, there was much discussion among Christians in Europe as to whether Adam had a belly button or not, since he wasn't born in a womb. Quite an argument ensued that went on into the 20th century, with some saying, yes, he did, and also God created the world to look older than it really is, even though it's really only 4,000 years old, because, well, maybe he wanted to have a complete backstory to his creation, or maybe he wanted to test our faith. Others said that this very notion implied God is deceitful, which is not a God trait, and so this notion itself is deceitful, which is the devil's currency, and so people who thought that Adam had a navel were actually doing the work of Satan, willingly or unwillingly. The idea sort of slumbered until the mid-1990s and the internet, where it became a popular topic of online chatter. And in fact, a Church of the Last Thursday, FAQ, was posted on a Usenet group by a guy named Michael Keane in 1996. 
This said that everything was created last Thursday by Queen Maeve the house cat, and next Thursday was Judgment Day, when people who were nice to cats got into heaven, and those who were not nice to cats, and also selfish, and also all creationists, would be banished to the eternal litter box, which is never, ever cleaned. This then spawned an offshoot, last Tuesdayism, which claims that the universe is made fresh every Tuesday. Or, if you like, the simulation is refreshed every Tuesday. A new version of the Church of Last Thursday says that the universe was created by you as a test for yourself, and everyone else in the world is part of that simulation, and they are aware that you are the only real person in the test sim, but you have to be kept in the dark about the true nature of things because that's part of the test. Obviously, this is a parody religion like Pastafarianism, the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster, Unicornism, which worships the invisible pink unicorn, the Church of the Subgenius mentioned in previous episodes, and many, many others. But like the heated debate that arose out of the Amphalmos notion in the 19th century, some Christians today have zero sense of humor about, well, pretty much anything, and they certainly find the intellectually exciting topic of whether or not we are currently living in some kind of simulation to be bad business indeed. You see, some Christian fundamentalists say this whole thing is really an attempt to replace God with technology. And who is it that tries to divert people from the truth that God gave us in the Bible? Why? Why, that's the devil, of course. So anyone who suggests that God is not the creator, but some computer programmers are, and that we're living in a simulation, is actually working for Lucifer. Lucifer. Boy, if that's where their heads are at, no one should tell them that the Matrix film series was really conceived of by the Wachowskis as a metaphor for being transgender. Not all Christians are so close-minded, however. There's a nice article in Christianity Today by Jamin Hubner titled, Friend, Have You Heard the Good News About the Simulation Hypothesis? That says, well, figurative speech is very much part of the Bible and is, in fact, really the main mode of theology, so you shouldn't dismiss this idea out of hand. But, he argues, it should be used with caution as yet another use of metaphor and analogy to aid us humans in trying to understand God's creation and plan. In the secular world, the simulation proposal also has many detractors. Some scientists angrily label it pseudoscience. Shannon Trosper Shorey, a tech writer for Religion Dispatches, thinks it's akin to a religion in and of itself and maybe a dangerous one. She references the not-very-good 2021 documentary A Glitch in the Matrix, which is kind of sort of about the simulation hypothesis, but also about Joshua Cook, a teenager who shot and killed his adoptive parents in 2003. Cook had watched the Matrix films numerous times and started to think that maybe he was Neo and that reality is a simulation and so therefore his actions have no real consequences or that he was trapped in the Matrix and needed to do something to red pill himself and escape. In fact, his lawyers were preparing what is known in legal circles now as the Matrix Defense, blaming the murders on the movie's influence on an unstable youth, when he surprised them all by pleading guilty, and so they didn't need to use it. Shorey seems to think that the movie and the very idea of the simulation proposal are dangerous and inevitably will lead to cases like this. You know, another one of these movies and video games are evil, and they cause people to become violent, and we know that there's no merit in any of this. 
Study after study after study has shown that this just isn't true. So this is really just cultural conservatism. I mean, sort of. Actually, I can't figure out her argument. It starts getting muddled near the end with references to pumpkin spice lattes and then some vague conspiracy notion about big tech. Other people argue that since the simulation proposal cannot be tested, it is not science at all, even though it has tech trappings. But rather, it is itself a faith. After all, the programmers who may or may not intervene in the simulation from time to time, are unseen and unknowable, which is basically what religions say about their creator gods. Yet some folks don't see that as necessarily a bad thing. Maybe it's time for a new religion, one that strips away all the historical baggage of past ones and which focuses on progress and future in the actual world rather than the sins of the past and a hypothetical afterlife. Nir Ziso, who used to be a software team leader at Israel's Defense Forces Telecommunications and Information Unit, MAMRAM, is trying to do just that with his Global Architect Institute, which he founded in 2020, which looks at the simulation proposal, even though they call it a theory, as a fact, as well as what he calls simulation creationism, which says the purpose of the sim we all live in is to, quote, research and monitor events related to creation and life. Their website has a lot in it, so check out the link if you're interested, but be warned, it's pretty dense stuff. The clock, the clock is tick-tocking. What's old becomes new again, as we have seen so many times on this podcast. And even though the year Nick Bostrom first published his paper, 2003, seems fairly recent to me, to a 22-year-old, well, they were three back then. So, when Heidi Wong put a 53-second video up on TikTok on December 12, 2020, that succinctly recapped Bostrom's argument, other TikTokers went wild. Other people on the platform made their own videos, all of them under a minute in length, with their wow, isn't that a trippy idea take on the concept. Some expanding it, like maybe ghosts are indications of a previous version of the sim having been written over. Other people posted parodies, and some people made videos claiming to have detected glitches in the matrix, like obviously fake videos of things appearing out of nowhere and stuff like that. Still others became concerned that talking about the sim at all could result in the sim getting unplugged, and so really we should all just shut up about it already. All this just shows the truth in a paper published in the first volume of the Open Access Journal of Controversial Ideas in 2021 by Rivka Weinberg of Scripps College in Claremont, California, an eastern suburb of Los Angeles. The paper is titled, Ultimate Meaning, We Don't Have It, We Can't Get It, and We Should Be Very, Very Sad. This paper speaks to my Gen X heart when it says, quote, Some people worry that life is pointless. That's because it is. I don't say that flippantly or glibly. I mean it, and I will show it. That is exactly the degree of cynicism, resignation, and yet also spirited optimism I myself have been striving forward with all these years. Will we one day know if we're living in a simulation? Maybe. Probably not, but who knows? Will we one day as a species be able to create sims indistinguishable from reality? Probably, if we don't destroy ourselves first, or a comet wipes us out, or whatever. Will we, the people alive today, be able to extend our lifetimes so that we will be able to see that distant future? God, I sure hope so. 
And whether the universe is made up of tiny vibrating strings or is a big brain or neural network or somehow creates conscious beings that then push its evolution along or simply resides in a server farm in the far future, as far as our immediate lives and environments go, it doesn't really matter that much. The idea that if we're really just computer code then our actions don't have any relevance or meaning is lazy because they sure do here in the simulation at the very least. And let's not forget, our brains create a simulation of the world around us, and that is actually what we interact with. So from a certain perspective, we actually are all living in a simulation all the time, no matter what the larger truth is. So simulation, real world, or something else, just continue to live your life the way you think you should. But remember, all of us are doing that. So if your preferred way of navigating through life or the simulation, whatever, is to impose your will on others, then, well, you suck. And you should know that there are many of us who will try to stop you doing that. But also remember that simply talking is not really a threat to anyone, so people shouldn't freak out so much about ideas and words. If we are, in fact, co-creators in reality, then we can kind of choose the world we live in to some extent, at least locally. I say choose one that gives room for others to do the same as well. For me, in my simulation, it's all about the maximum freedom for the maximum people. Not to say that there shouldn't be consequences for certain actions, but surely there's a balance that we can all strike. As I said at the top, Conspiracy Clearinghouse has been going strong for two years now. I'd like to thank everyone for listening, and hopefully we'll get another two years or even more. Unless, of course, someone pulls the plug on the simulation. Thank you for visiting... The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. We're closing now, but we'll open another crate in the next episode. Until then, thank you for listening.